0: Beautiful, welcome. Uh, Mike Sag, welcome to this session on switching when there's no good reason, that's what I would call it. But there could be a good reason. So um, what I thought I'd do, we talked about this some already in, the, in that one case, but I wanted to make sure in looking at the evaluations from other workshops, um, sometimes uh, there was a concern that you know folks came to the session and it got off track and talked about a whole bunch of other things. So I wanted to make sure we stayed on topic for the good first 20 minutes or so. And then I just think that there's so many other things that we can talk about that go beyond this. If you want to stay on switching, I'll give everyone a chance to exhaust the questions on that. But I suspect we'll cover that in 20 or 30 minutes. And then the last 30 minutes will be free-for-all. I mean, kind of anything goes. And my, my bet is that we'll talk about things for which there are no good answers. But you know what? That's a good thing because um, a lot of times in the practice of medicine in any field, um, it gets hard when you're you know, out there every day practicing to figure, this is a question that I'm encountering, I don't know the answer to. Do I not know the answer because I hadn't kept up and it is known or more commonly, it, do I not know the answer because the answer isn't just known? And, and having a meeting like this is a really a great time to just kind of reinforce those issues, but especially identifying the questions that everyone's struggling with and there are no answers just yet. And we can talk about even ways of how we could get to those answers through some research or um, just making things up, which I like to do. Um, So here we go. Let's start talking about the, the sort of elephant in the room, which is how do we switch or do we switch and when do we switch? From I'm going to use a trade name a because it gets hard saying that over and over again, so um, let's look at background for a second. Um, the antiretroviral therapy revolution really started in about 1994 and in the research arena 93 94 the first couple of protease inhibitors and remember initially they were done without boosting initially there was um, there was there was evidence that. Uh, you can't just use the drugs by themselves, and we stumbled into triple drug therapy, and by the time this became widely known in 1996, that's kind of the pivotal point. Everyone links it to Vancouver, but if you really paid attention, almost every bit of data that was presented in Vancouver were presented in January, like around the 28th at Croy, in in January of 1996. It kind of took six months for it to sink in to the providers and even some of the researchers about what did this mean? And what it meant was a huge shift in in success. And yes, there was resistance, and it took us a while to figure out how to use it well, but the number of patients who had Lazarus syndrome uh, who were terribly ill and came back, uh, a number of whom are still living today, uh, thankfully, um, all that started happening. The problems, if you remember, we started off with AZT, went to DDI, then D4T was supposed to be the savior drug. Remember that? It was not much toxicity initially. And then we started seeing problems with that with lactic acidosis and neuropathy over time. So here comes tenofovir, TDF, and it seems to be um, a real home run drug because it not only has much less toxicity, the bone and renal we know about, but it didn't happen all that often in people. And the challenging drug to that at the, at the time was baccavir. And baccavir had its issues that, and you gotta tip your hat to um, to Glaxo back at the day, now they're Vive, but um, that they figured out that hypersensitivity situation. You know, we, we take for granted B5701 as if it's, you know, oh yeah, we just checked that. But imagine the thought behind Just making that association and really working it out. And Simon Malau, who was in Perth at the time, who's now at Vanderbilt, really worked on this hard with Veve, and they figured it out. And to date, I don't know of a single person who's B5701 negative who has had a true Habakavir hypersensitivity reaction. The the association is just there. And if I take a sidebar into that, one of the, hypo- the hypothesized reasons is that on that chromosome where the B5701 is coded, just downstream is a heat shock protein. And in the certain milieu of that interaction between that genetic profile and bacavir, it's probably elaboration of product from that heat shock protein that creates the reaction in, in week four to six or so with skin rash, fever, GI stuff. So we got rid of that. So all right, so abacavir should be a competitor, right? And as we pointed out, if there's M184V, it sort of loses some of its oomph. But if it's a wild-type virus, works pretty well. The next thing we encounter is this whole story with um, the cardiovascular uh, side effects and potential complications. So abacavir, which if you put yourself in a Vive hat. You know, they're trying to go after TDF in a big way because it's, it's taken over the world. And by 2007, 2008, when a tripla was released, um, we did a study looking at, pr- at our practice and found that 87% of new prescriptions were for a tripla. And the way that the graph looked, we had it f- no particular planning. It turned out to be a green bar as opposed to other colors. But the green bar, you watch it grow like that, and we called it Godzilla because it kind of took over the world like Godzilla does. Anyway, so that's what we call the Godzilla study. And you think that that would never go away. It was going to be there forever. And and despite V's hard effort, you know, for years, just trying to knock tenofovir off of its perch, um, it just never could make a dent. They could never really make a dent. And then they struggled against um, the, the onslaught of... Uh, of the cardiovascular story which is I think still to me in my mind has a lot of equipoise we can discuss that if you'd like why did I give you all the background because if we go back to 2007-2008 I see seasoned treaters right here in the audience with us and Tony and Donna but they can comment as well but but the thought is that we never thought there was a problem with yeah Favren's a little bit right we saw some depression we saw some Uh, sleep disorders but for at least half the patients there wasn't much of a difference here and we we were very content so here comes Gilead who back in the early 2000s like around 2004 dates may not be exactly right they had also been pushing forward with developing more drugs and they came across the concept of TAF this alafenamide and they did some preliminary studies and showed that as you know, the serum levels are much less with a 25 milligram dose, but the intracellular levels were roughly equal. Now, they made a decision consciously to not develop the drug at that moment in time. And different, different areas of, um, it depends on who you talk to, uh, activists in some cases and um, uh, other folks say, well, they made a, a, a commercial decision to let the patent life run out on tenofovir DF, right, I see heads nodding, you've heard this, so that they could later come on and just shift it over. I'm not going to say, I'm going to try to do this with equipoise. I'm sure there was some commercial decision in there. However, what we have in our repertoire right now is the retrospectoscope, right? We can look back and know that that lower dose of TAF in the plasma and the equal concentrations intracellularly, do translate into relatively equal efficacy. But they didn't know that at the time they made the decision. They just postponed it. And so from an opportunity cost, I think if I were inside of Gilead, I I would think to myself, okay, we've got a drug that's doing well, almost a blockbuster with TDF. We've got this other drug that could take its place, but we also are starting to go into hepatitis C drug development. So if we have, everyone's got limited resources, what do we want to work on? So let's work on that for now, and then we can come back. And that makes not only some sense in terms of resource allocation, it makes sense commercially, because we don't want to take that risk if we don't have to spend on it. If say they're wrong about TAF, they don't have to spend the resources back then. So they made that decision for good or bad, and lo and behold, TAF has equal efficacy with lower plasma levels, and what appears to be lower bone and lower renal toxicity relative to TDF so that's kind of where we are now with all that as background what we're left with and I get this question from uh, clinicians in my practice or fellows when they come through is what do I do with the patient who's on TDF FTC and a favrins fixed dose combination at night that was the bomb in 2007, 2008, and now appears to be the exploding bomb in 2016. So, I think I'll stop there and just get comments from you guys about what you think, and then I'll share my opinions as well. But I'd like to make this more of a of a give and take dialogue. So, um, maybe I'll start with um, I don't know Don and Don and, and uh, Tony to see because you guys have been in the heart of this all along. I hate to put you on the spot, but I just want to get it going.
1: Well, it's a very difficult issue. I mean, we used tenofovir, the TDF, for all these years, calling it a very safe drug and not having extreme problems. Um, We do have to think about value in medicine, and that means cost. And if indeed TDF becomes available generically fairly soon, as does efavirenz, then we might be able to cheapen the regimen for some of these patients. But if we change them all to TAF drugs, which is probably the safest thing to do, there's not going to be a TAF generic in quite a while. So, yeah. I mean, this question comes up every day in my clinic, do I shift, you know, yeah. should I be on the new drug or I'm perfectly happy with this one and they kind of leave it to, in my my community, they leave it to me. So yeah. I've been struggling with the issue of do I change because they have priced the TDF Product and and the TAF product was slightly less. I mean, right now, the one of the cheapest drugs you can buy is Genvoya. So, there's um, a lot
0: less of it. Uh, Twenty five milligrams versus three hundred. Exactly. So you and imagine the cost of goods is less. Exactly. By so, definition.
1: I I don't know, Tony. Tell me.
2: Um, you know, I, I guess you know, I was thinking, Mike, as you were were talking, you know, I, I, there was never any point in you know the the first decade of 2000s that I lay in bed at night just wishing I had another nucleoside. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about as we worked through the development. And you and I worked on a lot of the same trials. You know, we were looking on third agents and new third agents and new classes of third agents. But you know, we we're really pretty happy with uh, with TDF. And uh, even when people had some resistance, they d- usually didn't get full resistance, right. and so it stuck in there. And we could put a PI with it, and it would still work. And we could suppress people who had resistance. So, um, so it wasn't something that you know seemed to be uh, a really pressing issue to, for me during that time period. And then, you know, when Taft sort of came onto the scene uh, and. You know, I guess, I guess it also varies provider to provider I mean, I can think I had two cases during the course of my last 15 years Of people who I think really had renal toxicity from TDF Yeah, they do And, you know, like I still have their names And, and my, my cell phone I could call them right now and speed dial I mean, I remember them clear as day I mean, like two mm-hmm. You know, we have 10,000 patients So I mean, like two, two that really stood out other people will tell you they had hundreds of people mm-hmm. that had, you know, renal insufficiency due to TDF. So I guess it sort of depends on where your perspective is about how significant that was as a side effect. Mm-hmm. And then the bone density issue, I mean, I used to always say that, you know, in the last five years, that this is so great that we get to worry about bone density when our HIV patients are going to be 80 years old. I mean, what a, what a wonderful world that we get to mm-hmm. be concerned about that today, you know. Right. Um, so then, you know, we did the studies, and sure enough, I mean, it, it appears that it's safer uh, for, for bone, and it's safer for kidneys. So what do you do? So, I mean, I think, you know, Cal Cohen does this great presentation, and, you know, he does work for Gilead and He works so for Gilead. It may be a little right. bit skewed, but, but he, I, I still respect his integrity, and he does this great thing where he says, you know, nowhere in our medical training did anyone ever tell us, save the safest drug for the sicker people. You know, oh, you're pretty healthy, I'm going to give you an unsafe drug. I'm going to save that that safe drug for when you get older or more ill, you know. So, so I, I do struggle a little bit with you know wanting to give people the safest thing. The FDA wants the safest thing. The patients want the safest yeah. thing. We as providers want the safest thing.
0: Yeah. Well, let's. So, but it's it's a little bit like the political discussions, and we you know if we if we talk in hyperbole of safe versus unsafe. But when we're really looking at this objectively, you know, the, it's a relative thing, right? So, tenofovir DF is not really unsafe, right, and, and it was something we were very happy with before, and I think that gets to Donna, to your point, that we're we're kind of struggling with, no question, there is a certain proportion of patients who will have renal trouble, and they might even have it with TAF, but much less likely, and then there's a group of people that are going to have bone trouble, all right. but there's a good proportion, again, I'll make a guess of half the patients who, at least in the 10-year time frame, where we've We've had the drug even longer than that now, 12-year time frame. Don't seem to struggle that much with it. So I guess Cal's point or Gilead's point is, well, why take the risk? And for, for I guess for picking new regimens today, we pretty much don't pick TDF much anymore. I mean, we might. And to Donna, to your point, we, when we have, when we start, if we ever get to a point where we start having formulary pressures on us, then we might, you know, be in a position where we have to choose, and I may finish with that at the very end if I remember to come back to the prediction of the future of where healthcare in the United States might go. Um, but but I think that that um, for those people who are currently on it, my current practice is I think similar to to yours in the sense that if somebody truly is doing really well and they are healthy and they don't complain of dreams and we interrogate them pretty do you have any depression? We actually have a screening through the things like that you heard yesterday from the psychiatrist in Columbia we all, we've been using those for eight years and we know when there's not only depression from PHQ-9 we also know that there's suicidality so we can sort that out but for people who are doing well I tend to leave well enough alone. Uh, just a show of hands, how many of you in that setting no side effects at all, or kind of rolling roll with your patients as they are? No, the majority, yeah. Okay, Can
3: yeah, I please. I actually had this exact patient on in my Monday clinic. However, uh, the disclosure for me is I'm a pediatrician, so I see adolescents and young adults.
0: Well, they're just going to have more exposure. Right. and well, <laughs> Hopefully.
3: Right. So they're going to have more exposure as well as their, you know, accre- hopefully, getting their peak bone mass, which I know that, you know, ideally then you'd say don't use tenofovir, but then I have patients who are not going to take a regimen. I can't give them once a day. So I do choose to give them TDF, but now that there's TAF and I can perhaps avoid those long-term <laughs> bone issues they could have, it's very appealing for me to do that. And as well as for a efavirenz, I'm not crazy about having adolescents in it, on it anymore because of the yeah. suicidality concerns.
0: So what are you, are you using, ropivirine?
3: Um, yeah, so we're using a fair amount of... Uh, Well, no, no, used to be Complera was kind of our number one regimen. Although, you know, if they're 18 and up, we're definitely using Genvoya. And uh, honestly, even a little bit younger than that, we've been doing well with that if they're fully tan or mature.
0: Right. And avoiding more than one pill at a time, even if it's once a day, because that's adolescence. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Us older folk, I mean, I don't know how many... Pills you guys take a day, but I always say we usually have one pill per decade of life. <laughs> so I'm right about there. I'm right about there. Yes, we'll go right off the aisle here. Um, yeah, sorry. So
4: I, I recently, I have a, um, a young like thirty-something-year-old, um, male, uh, male to female transgender patient who's been on Complera doing well. Tried to switch to Odefsey. Insurance denied it. And, uh, huh. and so the question, yeah. <laughs> So the question, you know, is going to come up, especially as the TDF products start going generic, that the insurance companies aren't going to let you do it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised, although I think I have an explanation. Um, what we don't know happening behind the scenes, we can see the pricing might be a little less list, but there are something. there's a, like a pernicious evil in the world of pharmaceutical and it's called PBMs. You all familiar with that? Pharmacy benefit managers. Um, they they aren't all evil, but there's a lot of them that are evil. And what they do is they're they're evil. And what they do what they do is they represent the insurance company, okay, to the pharma market. And they're kind of middle people. And what they'll do is they'll come to the insurance company and say, we can negotiate for a lower price with pharma, and we will give you that benefit. However, they never give it in terms of a discount ever. Why? Because they're paid on a proportion of what the cost is to the company. So what they do is they sell it at list price, so they can get ten percent of whatever list price is for them, and then they rebate the the savings back to the insurance company. Y'all didn't know that, did you? So you'll never hear a PBM give a discount. It's always a rebate. And I can't think I mean there's not much benefit they do to society. They don't help us out as providers. They don't help our patients out. And, we're, and it's totally, tra- it's, it's, it's under cloak. You never see what, they, what their price is. So what's happened here is they had already had the rebate set up for Complera. But for Odese, they hadn't worked it out yet. So all they had was this, and they weren't going to get, they weren't, they weren't going to be competitive in the pricing just yet. It'll change in about six months, I bet. Okay, yeah, just on that topic, right, on Jeannie? Topic. Yeah, here, let's Jeannie. This is Jeannie Curley from Hopkins and Moore Clinic. Yeah,
5: so terrible problems with some of the newer uh, co-formulated, I, like um, uh, GenVoia, for some of the private. It's it's actually not our medical assistance products because we have for some we've been able to you know MadApp has been excellent about getting those. But if they have a private insurance, especially. Uh, part d's if they have medic they have Medicare, if it is not on the formulary and unless you have so- if you are trying to prevent something if they don't have an issue medical issue with their current um, if you can't demonstrate that they will not do it and if it's not on the formulary they just won't do it right. i like i so i've had serious problems getting Jim Boya. um Prescribed. As opposed to Stribil, for example. Yeah.
0: And we're going to see more of that. So I think there's a question. Yeah. Uh, Rob will take it. Yeah. So we're going to come back at the end. Uh, I'm bookmarking these um, health system issues that we're going to come to. We'll come around. Yes, please.
6: So, in regards to switching, I mean, you know, we've waited for so long for safer drugs. So um, my patients are aging. Uh-huh. And they're developing diabetes, you know, cardiovascular disease, and all those other things. So I'm really nervous. I'm not waiting until I see signs of, you know, you know, issues.
0: So I'm just like kidney or bone. Right. Exactly. So you're you're more of a preventative. So, so is there a particular age where you get a little bit more concerned? Would you do that in a, say, a 40 year old versus a 48 year old versus a 58 year old versus a 68 year old? I'm going 45. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 45 the winner Uh, the the gentleman here I think is next and we'll kind of go around the room I'm actually going to make the same point that with the hypertensive diabetics as the creatinine is creeping up whether it's just age and you're seeing the 0.1 creep every year or two so what's your number? In the mid 40s. Mid 40s. Exact way. 46.3. Yeah, I <laughs> okay. And I, I just want to make one more point. Sure. This. this is obvious, but this whole discussion is part of a much bigger discussion that has to be dealt with with pharmaceutical industry and the cost of medicines, and not just with HIV. But yeah, somebody should write a book about that. Um, let's go here and then back there.
6: Um, yeah, you know, just f- speaking from New York City, I mean, I'm speaking to the patients because you know they're very well informed. They know about this TAF product. And from the younger to the older, they're asking, like, why am I not getting switched? Like, you know, why are you waiting? And the issue is the insurance. Like, I have a hard time getting TAF products, any TAF product. The only time I'm able to get is if I have evidence that the patient already has osteoporosis or low GFR. But, and that's in New York City. So it's very difficult to get the TAF products for our patients. And that's
0: despite the fact that taffy was created in Coney Island, I think. Or on the Jersey Shore, I can't remember back
4: here. I was gonna say that um, I had the same comments about hypertension, diabetes, and thinking about switching people before there are ever any issues when they're asymptomatic. But the other thing that I've noticed doing primary care, doing the pap smears, and sending um, uh, DEXA scans, for my ladies who have not even reached menopause, mm. many of them already have osteopenia, already have osteoporosis, just because I think of the prolonged exposure for the tenofovir. And I seem to feel like, I don't know what it is about HIV, but I feel like a lot of my women hit menopause a lot earlier with HIV, at least from some of the women I've been taking care of um, earlier than the mean of 51 and a half years. So that's just been an observation that I feel like I see.
0: Right. So I should have started the whole session off by saying I don't know the right answer, but what I think we're coming to is a consensus almost that I think at least for me is a right answer for the moment is it's one thing to say totally asymptomatic no symptoms but then is having diabetes and hypertension asymptomatic not exactly right there's under that's an undercurrent disease so we're talking about people who are otherwise healthy there's also an assumption in the comment that I made is that I'm doing a good job or think I am anyway of screening for depression and that can be a cult as you heard yesterday and I have seen cases where afavarans in particular really does aggravate depression and uh, or can make it more difficult to treat so that's a very easily modifiable thing that being said trying to create counterbalance and equipoise here there are again still people who can do quite well with that and I think in two years uh, those drugs are going to become generic and the cost to the health system is substantially less, at least based on list price. Okay? We're talking about theoretically the cost of annual costs going from say $20, 20000 dollars per regimen per year that with a fully generic will be less than a thousand. Okay? That means you can treat twenty two people more by using that it's not how we think as clinicians and 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 as I've had discussions with a lot of clinicians over time I think appropriately people say to me wait a minute my job isn't to treat the population my job is to treat the person sitting across from me that's how we're trained and and so it's hard for us as clinicians to say well I'm gonna give you this medicine uh, because it's better for the population and it may work well for you right we just, it's not how we, and I don't think we should actually go there, uh, but maybe we should. Kevin? Well, you know, the other thing Mike?
7: The drugs may be available. The Drugs may be, may become off, go off patent, but that doesn't mean generic drugs will be available. Uh-huh. Because the drug companies routinely pay generic manufacturers not. Or they buy the company. Drugs. Yeah. Or they buy the company or whatever. Right. So, so that gets the other question. Do. I thing that's interesting to do, I think. I don't know how many you know. There's a website, uh, ProPublica. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. It's interesting, interesting for lots of ways. But you can go on there and put in your zip code, and you can see the cost to Medicare of all the drugs that you prescribed in 2013, now, the data. And I went in, and I prescribed $3 million worth of drugs to Medicare in 2013. And And I was kind of stunned by that.
0: Yeah, and Medicare, by law, is not allowed to negotiate. There are ways around that. But
7: But it's just interesting, just the the value of – and sometimes I use that when I talk with insurance companies, and say, you know, I can cost you a lot of money if you don't help me here. Um, It helps with the negotiations. But it's it's actually really interesting to do. And, uh, again, I have slightly more Medicare patients than my partners, but both of them were uh, over almost $2 million each. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of money being spent on drugs, and that's just Medicare, not to mention the other things.
0: So look how quickly this evolved into a uh, discussion of healthcare financing. It financing. There, there's a lot to it. Yes, please. Um,
1: going back to the individual, um, building on the depression, and this, I may have heightened sensitivity since I'm married to a sleep specialist, but I've found that a lot of the asymptomatic patients, if you really drill down, they're – having sleep disorders and i Mm -hmm. think before you go down that pathway switching efavirenz is probably the first step yeah and then people doing like the third shift workers who already have a lot of significant challenges from sleep
0: and donna real quick
1: and i think some of the some of the data that has come out in the ripivirine literature suggests that there's more cns effect with ripivirine than many drugs and i I have found some people that I've taken off of rapivirine-containing uh, products that do much better with sleep. I, I've been looking at who gets Ambien and trying to figure out if I'm causing the Ambien yeah. need, and huh. rapivirine one that does that.
0: In- interesting. Yes? I just want to mention
5: that you know, I just had a, a patient who has Medicare, and uh, when he looked it up, Jimboya was a Tier 3, and uh, Atripla and was a Tier 5, so he... Really wanted Jumboya and not tripla. He was tripl- on tripla. I switched him to Jumboya, and um, for some reason he could not pay the copay, which was like two thousand dollar. He had some stash of tripla He switched himself back to tripla and then when he came to me to the clinic, he looked it up and he said, "Oh no, Jumboya is much cheaper. Can you re-prescribe it for <laughs> me?" So <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. That's what we wanted in the first place.
0: So, so tier 5 is worse than tier 3? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes?
8: Um, coming from South Georgia, um, we have two distinct populations in my district that we take care of. One is the younger population near a college. The other is my more elderly population. Um, I was in primary care and still in primary care for 20 years. In the last four years they've drafted me into HIV care. but. The population there, my aging population, depression is a very huge issue in the aging, depressed, um, elderly folks. And, and when you stop mix, start mixing in the diabetes, the hypertension, and we have a large African-American population, trying to get them on something different does seem to make a difference long term with their renal function. Yeah. Um, and so we've really had an issue trying to get Genvoia in our Medicare populations because... None of the Part Ds want to cover it.
0: And, and what about using, as we talked about a lot yesterday or day before, I forget when it was, um, well, we talked about using TAF FTC as Descovy, if you will, with Dilutegravir.
8: They using don't want to cover pills. any TAF drugs. They who? The Humana, uh, uh, see. Uh, Medicare Part D plans. Uh-huh.
0: Medicare, okay, Part C. But, so we have an advantage, though, right? where it depends on where we are and where we're practicing, because we do have the Ryan White Care Program that is there to fill gaps. And in our neck of the woods, we can use our Ryan White-related dollars to help with copays, pays right? And we can order medicines that we feel are better and get them paid through ADAP or through other programs. So it's almost a disreality in the United States practice of medicine for any <laughs> HIV provider. We've got a special carve-out that, you know, hopefully will never go away. But can you imagine our life at this particular meeting, it's appropriate to say this, without the Ryan White Care Program? What would it be like? And if you want the answer to that, just look at hepatitis C. And there you cure people, and you can't often get drugs. So it's interesting. So I'm hearing, and I'm, again, agreeing with you, that it's a balance, right, between um, all the little nuances of aging versus depression or sleep or um, other subtle side effects that aren't unique right to a Favren's you sometimes see it with re- ripivirine. You'll see it with other things, right? You'll see it with Genvoya. You'll see it with uh, Dolutegravir even sometimes. So that that that's the art of medicine, isn't it? And what's interfering with our practice of the art of medicine is layered on top of the difficulties of that, we're kind of boxed in by the payment systems and the regulations and other things that kind of make it hard for us to maneuver. Again, we have the advantage of Ryan White Care Program that gives us some flexibility most providers don't have. Uh, yes, please.
3: i was just thinking about the symptomatic issue and on bone disease, you know, the symptoms are not gonna happen until someone's you know, 65 or something. So, you know, you're giving a 30-year-old a drug that's going to lower the overall bone density, you may not see symptoms until they're a senior. So I don't know if we can think about it in terms of symptoms.
0: Yeah. Some of the studies have shown that uh, switching from a drug that interferes with bone mineralization, uh, that actually there's a recovery. So it's not like it's permanent. So that gives me some feeling of, well, I'm not maybe doing permanent long-term damage. Kidneys are maybe a little bit of a different story. But, but for bone, I think for a 30-year-old, we're probably okay. And, oh, by the way, we're doing this in prep every day, right? All of a sudden, uh, that's okay there. But it's not okay if you're going to be treating someone. It's a kind of a double-edged uh, argument. Okay, so this is about the right amount. I think hopefully that's addressed it. And, I, and if you're walking away thinking, huh, I'm still not 100% sure, well, join the club. That's the message, right? Because if you came here expecting me to say, this is how you do it, uh, it is, this is how you do it. You take all these factors and put them in the pipe and smoke it and hopefully you don't pass out uh, when you do that. Okay, yeah, one more comment before we move.
9: Actually, I was thought you were moving on.
0: Oh, we're moving on, <laughs> good point.
9: I have a question from the last lecture actually regarding um, hepatitis B immunizations and titers. So, Unless the person's high risk, we're checking hep C every, on an annual basis. Should we be checking their vaccination status? Should we be checking for that level of 10 that he yeah. recommended on an annual basis and boosting them?
0: It, it's, it's not a formal recommendation, but you're right. If we think somebody is at, expo- at risk... It's probably not a bad idea, at least every other year, just to kind of make sure it's, it's hovering, it's keeping on. I think most people would check it at least once after a series to make sure it took. And there, as I think was alluded to, there are some people who just never get the full immunity that you'd like. That said, there probably is some degree of protection Having gotten the vaccine because of whatever amnestic response that might happen upon exposure. But um, I don't know, what, is, what, do, what are your all's practice? Uh, what do you guys do? Yeah, uh, go here and then Tony. Yeah.
3: Generally, we pr- check for surface antibody and make sure they have an immunologic response. And unless their CD4 falls below 200, uh-huh. we wouldn't recheck it. And then if it does do that, we reimmunize them once we get back over 200 and recheck it. And right. So, it.
0: not to put you on the spot, but where do the 200 come from? Ah. Honest. Honest answer. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Tony? have oh, we got it here.
2: Yeah. So um, we had, uh, and I try not to practice based on anecdotal data, but, you know, you can't help it after a while. So well, no, it's
0: evidence in a way.
2: We had, uh, we had two patients uh, uh, over the, about 15-year period in our practice who came to us with uh, hepatitis B service antibody the qualitative test was positive. So that was before we had the quantitative test. And uh, both of them lost their immunity, and both of them got hepatitis B, and both of them became chronic active hepatitis B carriers. Yeah. So, so that's motivated us. We checked that, quali-
0: that quantitative hepatitis B service antibody at least once a year. So what hap- how often do you see it waning, and when you revaccinate, what's the response? Yeah, it does wane. Uh, you know, and, and, then we,
2: and we see it fall. It falls linearly, and some people fall pretty quickly, and other people
0: will stay really plateau over time. Okay. And what is it? And we reimmunize them. Yeah. And what happens then? And the level goes back up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a cutting edge thing. I, I don't think it's in recommendations yet. Um, I think you have to judge for yourself whether this is something. I think most people agree to check it at least once. The tighter. Yeah. I, that's not in the recommendations. Is yeah. It? Well. I think most hepatologists like Ken would recommend looking at the titer. Uh, but but whether it's comply. I mean, look, there's so many things we have to do, right? And, this, and if you have somebody on tenofovir, then it's kind of moot because they're unlikely to get a new infection on tenofovir. It's highly unlikely. So that's something else to consider. So is there like a lifetime
9: cutoff of, a lifetime cutoff of, uh, Boosters, you know, PPSV, you're giving them three in a lifetime. How many happy boosters right. can you can you get?
0: I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you ever see the movie? Three strikes uh,
5: and you out. No, uh, no yeah. this is I, we've had that too, where we've yeah. had patients and we've revaccinated, and it's still. N- I mean, how many times do you do that? Well, you know, particularly like you
2: know, patients who have renal insufficiency, you know, they're very difficult to get them to mount an immune response. Yeah, and so. Who take care of them. Is uh, you know you double dose them and you double dose them and you double dose them until they get some sort of yeah. Uh, but, but I think response. this
0: goes into what I call the Mel Brooks syndrome. Um, <laughs> how many of you all saw Robin Hood Men in Tights? Right. Remember the scene there, for those of you who had not seen the movie. Uh, there's a blind guy named Blinken. Right. And and one day Blinken it takes place in sort of medieval England or whatever. And the blind guy Blinken is up on the guard post blind, doing this. And Robin Hood rides up and goes, Blinken, what are you doing up there? And he goes, I'm guessing. I'm guessing that no one is coming. So a lot of times, if we're honest with ourselves, when we practice medicine, we're guessing. So we really don't know. And hopefully that helps you feel better about not knowing.
8: Yeah. So I think with that, I mean, th- there's there was a little bit of data that came out. I think uh, at a meeting several years ago that you could go through two full cycles of reimmunization with Hep B, yeah. and then after that, is there any significant benefit? And so I tend to reimmunize for two full cycles. Yeah. Once you've been through that, then. It, what are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to keep going forever, and, so at some point you yeah.
0: need to... That's what most do. I mean, if you're having experience where it gets reboosted, I mean, it's a cutting-edge thing. Remember, these vaccines are not all that old. We, we, we tend to forget that we're in the middle of a revolution in medical history. I mean, if you just go back 100 years in 1916, eh, there weren't any antibiotics. There <laughs> eh, wasn't even sulfa. People died of TB all the time. Influenza outbreak in nineteen eighteen. I mean, that's just a hundred years ago, for God's sakes. And even fifty years ago, right? If you go to nineteen sixty-five or something, few antibiotics, right? But 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 cephalosporins were just coming along. Penicillin was now in use, but all of a sudden, staff became resistant to regular penicillin. It was originally susceptible. So we're in the middle of a revolution, and we kind of want all the answers, but it, it, it we just got to make good guesses and that's part of what we do and that's the art of medicine yeah I'm a, yeah so how are we doing on time got about 20 minutes left oh yeah I'll come to that your, yeah.
9: your comment about patients on tenofovir brings up a, a question a couple questions one is do you think that patients on tenofovir that that protects them from catching hepatitis mm-hmm. B if they're not in, you know properly immunized and B, do we? If that's true, do we need to chase their immunization status if they're on tenofovir?
0: So Tony, your two cases that became infected were they on tenofovir? No, um, uh, you know, it's been a while I, have to go back and check and see. I would kind of doubt it. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not going to second guess you or first guess you. But tenof- think about it. Tenofovir works as prep for HIV. And the way it works is that you don't allow an infection to sort of take hold because it interferes with replication and that's a requirement. So if you have not only tenofovir on board but you've also usually have FTC with it, both are highly active against hepatitis B. We can ask Ken Sherman later, maybe I'll try to get some email out that sort of just says here's the answer to the question, but my best guess is that you would you would be protected by that alone, although I don't know that for a fact.
4: Yes I he think said that he said and
0: he said that
4: yes i i think he also actually pre- presented some data to yeah. that effect that he pre- protects you from getting the right type. relative versus one versus if you are actually on, on
3: non um on drugs that didn't include those two drugs specifically
7: it was yeah. 93 there you go significant the group, right
0: And so what I was going to
4: say was what I took out of his lecture was for my patients that have HIV and, you know, they don't have good response to hepatitis B vaccination, I want to give them a tenofovir-containing regimen to protect them. So either TAF or TDF.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a good idea. Okay, one more question here, and we'll shift gears if it's okay to kind of big-picture things.
8: Okay, this is something completely different. Um, Uh, Monty Python now, from from Mel Brooks to Monty Python. Long and short of it, is a 38-year-old patient that has been in our system for about nine years, who's been virally suppressed all those years, had a CD4 count of 5 or 525, who came in Friday with confusion, disorientation, and has always been syphilis negative, who has been on reyez geroninorvir, norvir, who's had no neurological symptoms whatsoever, a very functional gentleman working in the hospital setting. And so we got him to the hospital They at at the tertiary care center. They've evaluated him, and now they've come up. They thought he had PML. He didn't have PML. Um, Now they say he has hand syndrome or or HIV dementia is what they think he has because his viral load in his CFS was 2,500. Um, And so they've recommended switching him to Triumec from his reataz, trivatomorvir, and they say that's going to make him all better. Yeah. Um, any comment? I mean, I've never well, seen this First before, thing
0: obviously. I do is check an RPR. It was negative. Okay, RPR good. Was because negative. you don't want to forget meningo vascular syphilis. That they, they did is the, VD, they how, did that the is VDRL. Yeah, the, that yeah. is precisely. But it would be through the roof high, right? So that's ruled out. So here are the data that I'm aware of regarding hand, but especially as relates, there are varying degrees of penetration into the CSF with different antiretrovirals. If you look in the Sanford guide, for example, there's a whole listing that says CPE or cerebral penetration whatever index thing, and 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 it varies. There are definitely cases of people who have had syndrome, syndrome like we we're describing, you check a viral load in the CSF and it's elevated, and you switch therapy and they get better. So I would advise doing that, I'd have to look at the, at the levels of the likelihood of penetration, I mean, actually zydovidine is one of the best drugs to do that, but I'm a little loath to use that. I might try something else first. But I think that is a very reasonable approach in this guy. It makes a lot of sense to me. And just look up what might penetrate, and I don't know off the top of my head I don't remember the details of that yet, Tony. We did the um... thought you take
2: of your CSF study. And uh, so for many, couple of years, actually, we had the patient with the highest viral load that ever was treated with dolutegravir, and he was a, an acute infection patient. He had a viral load of 7 million, and, uh, 7 million in the CSF, I think. And, um, and he, Is that high? He ended up failing. <laughs> he failed the study because you had to be undetectable at week 8, and he had oh, 51 on.
0: copies at week 8. Oh, that's... So, that's uh, so I, I, pardon I, I, the expression, but that's bullshit.
2: <laughs> I'm telling you, Mike. No, yeah, I know. It was either, it was but he did, he did better, I guess? Yeah, no, he did great. He did great. And you didn't take him off Dolly Tegri. I didn't really. take him off him. But, you. but, but he, 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 I mean, for the, for the Dolly Tegri study, for the yeah, protocol yeah, 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 that was yeah, written, yeah, yeah, yeah. they had to be less than 50 copies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was 51 yeah. copies. But anyway, we went from 7 million yeah. to 51 so copies. So, you going from 2,500
0: yeah. to duck soup, you're going to be in great shape. All right. So, um, I make two comments um, the, before I get to the big picture healthcare thing. Um, One thing to keep in mind, and it came up a little bit, it came up a little bit in the question about MAC prophylaxis. You know, having been on the other side of the table sometimes when a protocol is being written, I can tell you that nobody sitting around the table, or rarely when somebody's sitting around the table creating entry criteria, exclusion criteria, or length of therapy or stopping rules or whatever it is, rarely are they ever thinking about, huh? What if this works, right? And then how does that translate into what practice is? And I can tell you it translates almost literally because that's just how it goes. Let me give you an example. When people, remember the, how many of you use uh, steroids w- when you treat ac- uh, acute PCP? Right at the, at the remember the a gradient's greater than thirty and the uh, h uh, PAO two is greater than seven. You know why that is, because in nineteen eighty seven, maybe nineteen eighty eight, Fred Sattler, University of California's uh, USC, had you know, he's a pulmonologist and he saw a lot of patients dying in his unit from what looked like ARDS who had pneumocystis, and it tend to happen on day two and three. And he just empirically said, well, what if I just use steroids? And he noticed anecdotally that he saw less. So he proposes to the California Collaborative Treatment Group that they should do a study of steroids. And everyone said, you're crazy. Why do you give steroids to a patient who's already immunosuppressed? Right? And the fact was, as you now know, they went ahead with the study, but they confined him to the entry criteria that we just quoted so when you look carefully at that study result I can almost draw it but if you can picture this imaginary graph here's a here's like a graph and here's a PAO2 at baseline if the person got steroids they never drop below their baseline they just went up if they didn't get steroids they all went down by day three and then they came up with a line that was almost parallel and anecdotally and otherwise that's true in every patient you treat even if they have quote mild PCP they will get worse in terms of hypoxia in the first three days if you don't give steroids so here's a place where the guidelines I think are wrong because they've melded into what a study told somebody to do and the reason the study was cautious was because at the time they were worried about. Well, are we going to make immunosuppression worse? Are we going to? Yes, there's side effects. You can get herpes a little bit more. You can get some candida. Nobody usually dies of that, but they will die of hypoxia. And I think, and I see headed nodding. But I can think of plenty of cases who start off with mild PCP, who did not get steroids, who ended up in the unit, and some of whom died. Right. So that's just an example. So I, I just make that as an editorial comment to your point about a protocol said I should do this, but that doesn't mean it's smart medicine. Okay, all right. Final points I want to make, if it's okay with everyone, let's talk about the healthcare system just briefly. We've got about maybe 10 minutes. Um, our healthcare system, uh, I think everyone would agree, is kind of messed up, and it's not because of Obamacare, and it's not because of anything that we've done, but it, it's just the nature of the beast going back to the 1930s when um, we're trying to, FDR was trying to create national health insurance. And in the middle of all of his other alphabet soup of federal programs, the one thing he couldn't get past was that. And Truman tried in, in 48, and he didn't go, get anywhere. Um, uh, Kennedy was had mind to do it. Johnson got it done with Medicare and Medicaid, but they wouldn't go to a full bore thing. They had to keep it with the elderly or the very, very poor. Nixon had a mind to do it, and then Watergate happened. Carter would have wanted to, but he just couldn't get it done. Reagan, not so much. Um, carter, carter tr- I mean, not Carter, Clinton tried, as you know. Hillary got destroyed on that. And interestingly, um, in 1994, in response to Hillarycare, uh, the Heritage Foundation came up with a competitive concept where insurance companies would compete against each other in something called a healthcare exchange. And they would compete, and there would be a public option that would be the government thing. And it sounds familiar, doesn't it? That Heritage Foundation plan, which was a right-wing think tank, is exactly what Romney implemented in Massachusetts and works fairly well, which became Obamacare. And suddenly, it's no good anymore. My point isn't whether Obamacare is good or bad. My point is, when we look at our healthcare system, it's fragmented, it's chaotic. and it doesn't serve the patient well, it doesn't serve us well, and it doesn't serve hardly anyone well except those people who are in a position to profit or generate revenue from it and there's a few people who can do that. What I think we need is more awareness of what these PBMs do, these pharmaceutical benefit managers, what formulary means and why we have it because there's oftentimes the copay for a formulary drug is sometimes more than the acquisition cost to the insurance plan. So they're actually making money on your copay. If you buy Simvastatin, right, and that's your statin, you might pay $6 for a month's supply. Well, it might have only cost them $3. And this is going on because there's no transparency. So we're in Washington, D.C. I know this wasn't what you signed up for, but I just can't resist because it does all play into the conversation of, what do we do with generics, what do we do with brand name drugs when we started off this conversation about TAF versus TDF when it goes generic. The fact is that until we have some way of creating a system whereby pricing is set at the time of approval by the federal government, in my opinion, and we allow generics to be imported from wherever, that's the only way we're going to start getting a handle on EpiPens going up, Daraprim going up, uh scene going up. So to summarize this briefly and I want comments just to challenge everyone. So what I would say we might consider is a program when a new drug comes to the FDA for safety and efficacy evaluation, good, we should have that. Continue like we are. But once it's approved, there's a separate hearing, it could be behind closed doors, where the pricing is discussed. And the 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 FDA along with maybe some e- health economists set a maximum charge for that medicine based on what's fair to everyone. And that's where the pricing essay is. And then the second part, as I already mentioned, is that we, once a drug goes generic, we allow importation of that drug from Canada, from Mexico, it might get around the wall, um, you know, from wherever, Go airmail it. <clears throat> Throw it over the wall. So, yes, please.
4: You know, one of the things that is frustrating, though, with the Daraprim example and the EpiPen example, and even with insulin, I mean, insulin. the price of insulin is going yeah. up. It's, it's, yeah. it, I mean, Banting did that almost 100 years ago. Right. So why, why drugs that are really old, like epinephrine and pyrimethamine and insulin, why is that going up?
0: Because they can. Well, I yes. Read.
4: So so, I mean, so maybe what needs because to
0: happen. Because they can. So maybe because what, it's not illegal what they're doing.
4: No, I know. So maybe what needs to happen is figuring out some way, and I don't know the answer to this, of course, where we – somehow create incentives so that there is more competition amongst generic companies yeah because there isn't so which is why you know epipen has a corner share on Co- the market correct
0: so what that requires that was a subtle comment i made is that if you allow open importation where you i think simple most people use those drugs if you work in africa at all they work fine right so you can import from india and uh and and there might be some you might have companies that go through some degree of regulatory oversight. So you don't want just any, you know, you don't want necessarily some something in far off China up in the mountains that some guy with you know cooking meth and then by the way <laughs> makes some colchicine, <laughs> right? Sending it over. Anyway, there should have to be some regulation. Yeah. I, I was just
5: going to comment that the EpiPen, oh. the the I think it's pharma. The CEO just gave herself a. Are you ready? Fifteen million dollar raise.
0: And deserved it. Because from a corporation perspective, he's done his job. She. She's done her job. Sorry. My evaluations just went down four points. Wow. I feel like Donald Trump. I just stepped right in it, didn't I? Okay. All right. Okay. To regroup, um, I I think that that where I think we're going to end up, at least my opinion, and everyone's welcome to your opinion, of course, but... I think we're headed towards a day of reckoning where we have to come to grips with the fact that our healthcare finances are finite, which they are, and I think ultimately we're going to end up in a capitated system. Think Kaiser. Anybody here work with Kaiser? Eh, Ryan White funding doesn't typically go to them, but but, um, if you're familiar with Kaiser, it is a capitated system, which means that there's X amount of dollars per covered life that is paid and that's all that's all the system has to work with they don't have fee-for-service like we think of and and what's beautiful about it at least from the outside looking in is two major things one what providers do for a given clinical situation is from some internal guidance that they create but it's the clinicians who create it so when to get an MRI in a certain situation for back pain or whatever it is it's all agreed to ahead of time and you can go off label if you will but but for the most part it's well thought out because all the providers are in the room with the with these sort of accountants and they're looking together they're on the same team creating cost-effectiveness and it gets back to the point about what do we do with a, a generic that we can compete for right that It won't be an individual provider, you or me, sitting across from a patient saying, well, I'm going to use a triple here because it's cheaper. But there will be guidance within the system that says, here's a place where you might use it, and if you did, you'd save 22-fold what you would have spent in a year otherwise. And not to reward you for it, because we're all in this together. But the better we operate as providers working in sync with the healthcare financing, the better everyone does and and for the beneficiary for the patient if we're doing a good job as a provider and as a health system one of two good things happens either the premiums come down or if the premiums stay the same benefits or the, the 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 benefits of whatever you get as a patient can go up and i think that's where we're headed you've heard the terms rcos or acos that's kind of what these are but we've got to sort of emerge into this in my opinion and i think Some of the Medicaid reform is doing that. Yeah, please comment.
6: comment, um, Yesterday, someone made the comment, one of the sessions is that so the providers could do their work. They were talking about the incentivizing uh, system where, you know, and my concern with that, you know, we were talking about physician burnout, so many other things, EMR, you know, the role of the primary care provider, and the issue of, you know, society's problems being based on the patient and the provider now. Where, you know, again, coming from New York City, unless you want me to give a peg to a patient so that they'll take their meds, you know, at some point there's patients' rights and they uh-huh. can decide when they take their meds. That, you know, we all can, and I do, I have a few, probably like less than 10 patients that, that don't want to be on meds for specific reasons. Their viral load is very low. And you just try to keep them engaged and yeah. care and get their numbers uh, so that they... So my concern with the incentivized, and I just wanted to get your your opinion on that regarding the you know if your viral load is suppressed your a1c is controlled Ah. your patient population so you're saying you're going to be getting a certain incentive and i'm kind of like who's you
0: the patient or the provider the provider the
6: provider and so then my concern is well providers are smart and all over Mm -hmm. facebook and my social media you know doctors are picking patients right so then who's going to take care of the other patients? i have thought
0: about this a little bit i don't i don't think we should be paying providers more for the success of their patients directly flip it. We reward the patients for their success. So if they are successful, their premiums come down. If they don't smoke, their premiums come down. They, they are incentivized and they take us out of the equation. I, I think we're at the end of time, but let me finish with one comment that sort of turned me on. I'll, I'll let Kevin, all right, you go ahead and I'll finish. With them all right, I, I just ahead. had
7: two comments. One on the Kaiser thing, as a primary care provider, the one advantage, the, the one advantage they have is that they're all in this together, meaning the specialists as well. Yeah, that's right. You, know, you have a patient that's Everybody depressed. Everybody gets paid about the same. And you have a patient Ooh. that's depressed, you, call, you try to get them, you know, and I can't manage it. Where do I send my patient? Right. You know, the, the resources aren't there. Or, you know, or a surgeon, you send a patient to a surgeon and they, they say, well, we don't, he doesn't need surgery. You don't know why. Yeah. Well, I think he does, but they say he doesn't. Is that because he has HIV? Right. Because whatever, because he's going out of town a week, whatever. So, they're, But they're all in it together, which I think is part of it. So speaking to that, I think it's important, as you started to say, that it's incumbent on us today in the current environment to be active and to be yeah. responsive. And people here have the opportunity to join the Ryan White Medical Providers Coalition. Ah, okay. That's and right. You Tell are, me about that real quick. If you are a member, you should become. It uh, costs exactly nothing. You can go to the HIVMA website and, and get information. And I'm one of the members, and we've gone to the Hill, and we've talked to – People in different places and, and actually it, we've made some we made some changes and It is a nice
0: way to stay politically or to get become politically active, meeting with members of Congress but also meeting with offices of management and budget um, and and so let me let me kind of close with the comment that I was going to make is that I kind of stumbled into this awareness of what Kaiser is and does, and I'm, again i 'm not an employee, and i don 't get paid by them or whatever. But, but what struck me, I went to give an HIV update for their medical providers in California, and there was some meeting in Anaheim, Disneyland, which is maybe appropriate. Um, and, and so we're in a bus, right, going from the hotel to the convention area, and it's about a 10 or 15-minute ride. Everything's long in Los Angeles, right? So um, I'm riding in the bus, and I'm on the bus with a bunch of internists. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, these people look happy. I haven't seen a happy internist in 20 years. <laughs> They're happy. They looked. I thought, what are they smoking? You know. I thought, anyway. And so on the ride back, I took the opportunity to just start interrogating them. Well, are you seem happy? Oh yeah, you're happy in your practice. Oh, I love my practice. I haven't heard an internist say that maybe ever, right? They love their practice because of everything we just said. They get to be doctors and nurse practitioners and whatever it might be, and they actually are part of a system that is hanging together rather than hanging separately. And, and that's where I think, in some form or fashion, we have to get to, my opinion. But thank you for indulging me on getting off topic, and you'll probably criticize. I know you're going to criticize for that, uh, that uh, CEO. Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> but all right, so thank you, and I hope you all enjoyed the conference. This, I think, closes it up. Thank you. Thank you.